For the next three weeks, join Deacon Charlie for his Napa Conversations. These episodes were recorded remotely from the Napa Institute Conference, an annual event that unites academic, business, and faith leaders to discuss ways to support and advance Catholic apostolates throughout the country. This week at Napa, Deacon Charlie sits down with Everett Fritz, husband, father, author, speaker, and founder of Andrew Ministries, a nonprofit devoted to training parishes in small group discipleship and family-based youth ministry. The two discuss Everett's talk at Napa titled, Why Are Young People Leaving the Church? They also explore the best ways to interact with those on the margins and how to evangelize in today's world. Jesus came close to people. And of course, like he became one of us, he became flesh, like should show the intention of like God wants to be close to us. But you look at the way Jesus dealt with lepers. Back in his day, lepers, if you were to touch them, you were would be considered unclean yourself. They had to live in a colony. They had to shout unclean to tell people to stay away from them. And Jesus, rather than, than pulling back, he draws in. That's scary. Mm. It requires vulnerability. Yeah. And it requires, uh, like nowadays, it's definitely a, a tendency is to stay back and want to shout unclean at people rather than coming close to them and actually getting to know the messiness of their lives. This is Living the Call. Everett Fritz, welcome to the show, brother. How's the uh, Napa conference uh, been treating you this week? Are you hanging in there? I have not been sleeping well this week. So uh, then, yeah, I woke up at 2 turned on my phone in terms of like something to listen to that helps me fall asleep yeah and i and i was able to go back to sleep well phone died uh and and then uh woke up at like 7 45 at a 7 15 a.m breakfast so then i had to profusely apologize and then and then it just seemed like one thing after another got, got me held up and i took a wrong turn on the way here and anyway yeah you know what helps yeah. me fall asleep it's weird obscure bbc comedies from like the 70s Everybody's got a weird thing. So, so for me, it, there's like this ASMR, like a person oh, like whispering into the yeah, mic, yeah, like, yeah. hello. Yeah. The yeah. ASMR stuff is trippy. Although that, yeah. that, that can kind of take you down a rabbit hole because, uh, ASMR gets used in all these kind of funky illicit ways as well. I remember one time I was doing, um, I, I, I worked with, uh, a client of mine who's a, a Hollywood person, Hollywood celebrity. I don't know if she, well, you know what she published It's Zoe Zaldana, the actress. Mm-hmm. And, um, she had this idea for an ASMR cooking show. <laughs> it was sure. like, you know, you put the microphone on the food and it's like all the little crickles yeah. and all the little, you know, different things. And so because I started searching for ASMR, cause I really wasn't that familiar mm-hmm. and um, maybe folks aren't familiar with ASMR. So I would just say there, that there's one video in particular, but at some point it's like, it's like this perfect, variation of like whispering and then and but eventually she gets to a point where she's like brushing the microphone mm. and it's so soothing it is well that's the but thing with ASMR. My, my wife is my wife's video that she falls asleep to if she's having a really hard time it, it's strangest thing is um shaving of hooves oh interesting on, a, on yeah, like a so pig or something curiously satisfying yeah, yeah. and i was it, like I'm like, what in the world are you watching? I thought you were going to say something yeah. like Metallica, Master of Puppets or something. No, no, no. That would be really strange. No, I, I looked over at her one night and she was watching this and I was like, what are you? Are, you're in the strange place of, of mm. YouTube again. You know, it's like, <laughs> like sometimes you end up watching the strangest thing on like a YouTube. You're like, how did I end up here? Yeah, and, there's a yeah. whole category of, um, you know, curiously satisfying. That's the category name. Yeah. And you've got people like uh, using a power washer 
on like the driveway and it's like slowly sweeping back and forth and it's going from really that. dirty to super clean, you know, or, um, or so there's like the OCD people are like, this is amazing. It is, but it's, yeah. cr- you know, it's, cr- I think it's all part of that whole, like, um, I don't know, all these things are maybe interrelated, the whole wellness movement, mindfulness and all this other mm-hmm. stuff. But ASMR for sure, for folks who may not know what ASMR is, that's, it's an audio sensory there. I forget what all the acronyms are, but it's basically like really gentle talking and like mm-hmm. a lot of this kind of like, you know, sounds and things. And it does it, have a, it has an effect on your brain. I, yeah. I think it, I think it actually, what it does for certain brain types or something, it triggers like a release of something in your brain. That's very calming. Uh, I don't know exactly how it works, but it definitely. Well, it follows though. Think about it when you have a child, a small mm-hmm. child and you know, either in mom, usually it's mom's arms, but sometimes dad, I guess there's a lot of this kind of shushing and mm-hmm. like, you know, petting and, you know, consoling and all of that. So it makes sense that there's something kind of hardwired in there from the very beginning mm-hmm. that, that, uh, that does that. You know why shushing is, is effective with little babies in Tell terms me. of helping, helping them go to sleep. It's because it, it, um, uh, and the louder you shush, the better it's because it sounds like the womb Yeah, because they're constantly getting shushed in the womb. And then between that and the gentle rocking, because when the mother's moving, so it reminds them, it like triggers what's going on in the womb, helps them fall asleep. One of my boys, uh, when he was really little, this is my, uh, my middle son. Um, you, he would go to sleep only if we had the faucet running like full blast. So like you just leave it on the background and it created that white noise that was to him anyway, very, very soothing showers, faucets. Um, and ironically we tried at one point getting one of those like white noise makers Mm -hmm. failed miserably. Didn't work at all, but like something about that sound and repeat. And yeah, it is definitely womb like, cause those are the sounds you hear the beating of the mother's heart. It's a very pro-life thing in a way. Right. I mean, you know, if we were marketing those products, we might do it a little bit differently. Yeah. Did no, you, it's true. Did you see the protesters on the way over? I did. I had, I, I was like, Oh, I still want to go talk to you. Yeah. Um, just like stuff like that. I'm like, I, I want to, I want to bring you a glass of wine. Let's chat. You Let's know. chat chat. Yeah. I didn't so get I, said, to- I got to shout good morning at him, but that was about it. Uh, so did I, I did saw you- this sisters of life were walking away from them. So I think the sisters of life were on it. But, we're, we're trying to talk to him. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, uh, what were their, what their signs say? The one I saw was abort yourself. Um, and I saw another one that I think said, uh, down with like misogyny and racism or what, I I don't know stuff that I'm like, I'm like, I can get on board with that. Yeah. Sure. Cool. I'm totally down misogyny, but the aborting myself might make this conversation more (laughs) short-lived because we wouldn't be able to talk. No, exactly. I'm yeah. That, I mean, abortion, I guess by definition would be in the womb. So I'm like, I can't even do that. I can't go back in the womb. Yeah. But get into a whole born if again. If you want to just put, put up a sign that says kill yourself, then that's kind of And mean. that's basically what it is. And that's really right. mean. It's yeah. kind of a showstopper. Yeah. It's a conversation ender. Yeah. Yeah. So we're at Napa. Yep. Right. We're having this, I mean, let, let's talk a little, two seconds about what Napa is for folks who, as you, you want what, to talk. What is Napa? Well, I'm, I'm asking you so you can help educate us on what Napa is, but um, I'm still figuring it out. I'm doing some recordings. So obviously the intro to this show talked a little bit about the fact that we're at Napa and maybe gave a two second uh, intro. I can start and then you can maybe fill in the gaps. Yeah. Uh, Cause I mean, in all honesty, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what, what it is. I mean, I know what the, what the professed mission is, et cetera, yeah. but uh, it's, it's, an interest. This is not my 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 typical audience or my typical. Not uh, your bailiwick. No, but not I dig that you're here though, because even some even your talk, which I definitely want to get into, although I missed it, but I heard enough about it. Uh, even your talk is is kind of like this bust the bubble sort of thing, which I dig because there is a little bubbly, you know, aspect perhaps mm-hmm. that people who don't know and aren't 
here may look at and say, this is why I don't like this. But I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give you my two seconds on it. So Napa, uh, the Napa Institute Conference, which is where we are right now and recording this show, happens once a year. It's been happening for like 12 years or something, 13 mm -hmm. years. And the whole, I, I guess from what I understood of the initial genesis of this was to bring people together who were, you know, I influential in church circles to talk about how they could support and uh, advance apostolates throughout the country, given all the various fronts that the church needs to be active in and the realization that not all of this can be done institutionally or through the clergy, right? So that was sort of like, at least what I understood to be the original genesis. Mm -hmm. And over that time, it's grown uh, pretty significantly. I've only been, this is my second year here, so I don't have much experience, but um, you have a lot of people from apostolates, ministries, that kind of thing. You've got a lot of um, you know investor types, money folks who come here to maybe look to see how to put money to work. Uh, you have a lot of religious, a lot of priests, a few deacons um, who are here, some, a lot of bishops as well. So it's become this kind of a higher profile thing. At least that's how it hit my screen. I was like, oh, are you going to Napa? Are you going to Napa? And because I come from the secular world, I kind of equated it with some of the conferences you would hear about all the time in the second. Are you going to South by Southwest? Are you going to CES? Like the, are you going to Cannes? Are you going to, you know, like these sort of bigger events? That's how it initially hit my screen. Um, and on a practical level, there's talks. You gave one. Mm -hmm. um, there's, you know, people, there's presentations and keynotes and that kind of stuff. So in those ways, it's sort of like a, a, a more typical conference. But the goal is, what I understand, kind of bring these apostolates visibility and connect a number of different constituents at the same time. That's kind of how I see it. Yeah, I, it's, it's interesting because I Napa wasn't on my radar in um, in any way for for uh, at, at one point last year. Somebody said, "Have you ever thought about going to Napa?" And I was like, "Yeah, I've heard about that. That's like the thing that's up in. I mean, we're we're in wine country. We're at a resort. It's very fancy. Yeah, uh, and which is like I said, not my typical audience. And um, uh, now that I'm here." And speaking at it, I'm seeing like, oh no, here's the value of this. I mean, look, I'm I'm a big big believer in Catholics need to get out of the bubble, uh, get out of the bubble, get out of the echo chamber. Uh, and this place is is definitely um, more in the line of echo chamber. But there's something to be said for uh, people who want to support mission and the mission of the church and further that mission. Uh, people who have money to give to that. People who are bishops, and there's a lot of bishops here, uh, who want to find the apostolates that are doing great work, who want to be able to have the kinds of conversations, the kinds of thought leadership, thinking, think tank, et cetera. Um, and uh, this, what I've seen already is I'm like, first of all, it's like a reunion of, of fantastic Catholic apostolates. I'm seeing a ton of friends, people who are doing amazing things in the church that are all here. And there is a, um, yeah, a little bit of a hive mind, a little bit of a, um, a, a, a I guess you could say it's a collaborative environment. Mm. Uh, and, and that's really, really beautiful. So, uh, you know, and yeah, we're drinking wine and, and there, you know, there's, there's some, it's a nice place. Yeah. No, there's some financial investment behind it. Nothing For wrong sure. with that. I I'm laughing at all the, the religious that are here that I know took a vow of poverty and some that I know who live like, who are friends who I know like live extreme poverty. And I'm sure. like, what the heck are you doing? Like, yeah, this is, it's gotta be weird for yeah. them in some cases. And I actually it, saw a bunch of sisters just sitting out on the grass eating. They're like, they weren't having lunch. Yeah. They just like were brown bagging it on the curb basically outside. <laughs> I was like, that's cool. You yeah. Know? 
Yeah, so it's it's been a very interesting environment. Yeah, I, I can see the pro, you know there's a there's a handful of politicians here just like anybody they're they're Catholics, uh, they want to to take their gifts and talents and what they do in in the space and figure out how politically they can uh, affect the world, but you know that that will encourage protesters to show up and start. Uh, anytime you have uh, uh, anything that skews one way or another, you're going to have yeah. people that show up. So, Well, that's the thing about this is, I, I, again, I've only been here once before. But one of the things that I've noticed this year was there's a lot more people, mm-hmm. but there's also more security. Now, part of that is because we have these very high profile people that are, you know, secular folks. Like we've got a, uh, the former attorney general is giving one of the, key, the, the keynote tonight, right? right? So um, uh, Bill Barr and those guys travel with security and they've got secret service and all that stuff. Which I feel like we should say for any listeners, it's like uh, Bill, Bar- Bill Barr is a Catholic. That's why he's Correct. here. Yeah. And, and I don't know that, uh, look, we'll put it this way. I don't want to be uh, put in the, in the context of, okay, everybody's here that is a Trump supporter because Bill no, Barr was in the Trump exactly. administration. Well, well that's kind of where I was going is the way that sort of the local media, at least in to some extent, national media has played up this event and this conference is that they mm-hmm. framed it that way, right? This sort sort of like, um, shadowy kind of clandestine gathering of people who are, you know, and it's amazing to me to watch that, to see that, to read those articles. I don't, I don't recall reading that last year. Mm-hmm. And yet it maybe it's testament to the kind of environment that we're in right now where things that are objectively good, like bringing together people who are Christians who want to put their material resources and networks to bear on the kingdom that takes on this sort of like, you know, pallor of, uh, of nefariousness, you know what I mean? But I've seen that and, and you know, there's some aspects of that which I can understand if you're a total outsider looking in. It's kind of like when you look at any community and you're like, oh yeah, you know, homeless guy, he's a bum, he's a drug addict, he's an alcoholic, okay. And there's some truth in that, right? Mm-hmm. Now, none of that helps you, so you're definitely still an outsider looking in. If you're an outsider looking in at this conference, I could see where you might draw some of that from, but the reality is so much different than, than, than what that sort of um, whatever, you know, stereotype uh, is, but nevertheless, it's out there, I yeah. mean, you know, and, and that, there's protesters outside to prove it. Yeah. No, I, I think I came into this a bit naive because, uh, um, I tweet, you know, I, I'm given, I gave a breakout session, uh, spoke on why young people were leaving the church. I did what I typically would do if I'm giving a session at a major conference where I tweeted it out, put it on Facebook, et cetera. Uh, Hey, come to my session. It's in this location. This is what I'm talking on. Um, Napa, uh, their Twitter account retweeted it, which was very kind of them. Archbishop Corleone, uh, then retweeted that why young people are leaving church, which was great, great publicity for me. Uh, and, uh, my Twitter then that morning of my session blew up because mm. the Archbishop put uh, Corleone from San Francisco put that out there and it seemed like everybody was taking it as an invitation uh, to comment on why they think young people are leaving the church and it was just the most most vicious <laughs> um, interesting uh, uh, Twitter threat which you know that's the way Twitter is uh, it's, it's a lot of angry people it's a place for bad behavior yeah you know? yeah but uh, but then but then I started getting all the naysayers of Napa that oh, were tweeting on and I was like what is all this like, I'm like, I'm just giving, I was invited to give a session. I'm giving a breakout session. Guys, I give breakout sessions all the time. Yeah. Uh, and, um, 
and they were like, oh, what a joke. You're doing it at Napa. Like, uh, uh, I actually ended up with my audience. Uh, uh, I ended up reading a few of the tweets to them because I was like, just so you know, like, here's what people are saying. None of this is, is accurate. Yeah. But I said, some, some people are actually blaming you guys. They said, why are young people leaving the church? They said, turn a, turn a mirror on them and tell them they're the reason why. And I said, so just so you Yikes. guys know, you're the reason why young people are leaving the church. You got a good laugh in the crowd. But. It's super pastoral. Yeah. I'm sure that works. Yeah. Not, um, yeah. I, and, and I do, I think the bridge between the notion, the comments you were getting on Twitter and the kind of stereotypical reaction to the extent people know about this and your talk, there is a bridge there in between, which is, um, you know, this sense of outsider looking in, I really don't know what's going on, but I'm going to throw rocks at it. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I see some characteristics that I may not agree with. And at the same time, our own recognition as Christians, as, uh, you know, apostolate leaders, you know, as responsible entrepreneurs in a way to recognize the things in us that we need to get better at. And there's a, there's a bridge between those two things. And I think your talk, and again, I didn't attend it, but I heard from my wife, which is almost as good as being there, mm -hmm. that she talked about um, this sense of you challenging people out of the bubble, right? Out of some of those characteristics that maybe sometimes get amplified through Twitter and other places and end up having somebody hold a sign on the sidewalk saying something that's completely just not related to what's going on, right? So there's this challenge that you brought to your talk about mm -hmm. this sense of getting out of the bubble. Like, what is that? Well, oh, so it, it came up during Q&A because uh, I was taught, look, my main apostolate is, uh, I believe that the way we're, we're forming our young people in the Catholic Church uh, is not working, that youth ministry is broken, uh, that the paradigm uh, is obsolete, uh, the way in which we, and the vast majority of Catholic parishes have something for young people, even if it's just a children's ministry or sacramental prep. And I believe, you know, what we're doing is, is fruitless. Uh, so I advocate for small group discipleship. So I was talking a lot about dis discipleship, the way Jesus did it, the fruit of the ministries that I've built uh, in terms of the longevity of, of young people's active faith and, and how they've lit on fire. And so it came up in Q&A, somebody talked about families, and, and uh, which of course, parent, I said, without question, parents have a greater impact on the life of their, their child than anybody else, that young people's faith tends to skew in the direction of the way their parents raised them in terms of their own active faith. Um, but that being said, I said, look, I'm, I'm really concerned by two things I see with Catholic families these days. Uh, one is that the number of, of devout Catholic families is shrinking, not growing. Uh, and so I'd rather work with an asset I know I have versus one that I know I, uh, that is uh, getting worse and worse. Um, but two, I said, I live in, in Denver, Colorado, yeah. which has young Catholic families coming out the wazoo. I mean, we're, we're an anomaly in that respect. I mean, there are young Catholic families everywhere. Yeah. And I was when really I noticed, impressed by that recently when I went to see you out there, yeah. just how much so that's the case. Yeah. And a big part of that, there's a, a lot of reasons for that. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, Denver in general is young. Um, it's attracting a lot of young people. Uh, then with that, you've got uh, World Youth Day in 93, Archbishop Chaput was a magnet for ministries. You've got ministries like Augustine Institute and Focus that that have a lot of alumni that, and everybody just breeds ministries anyway. So it's kind of a mecca in regards to young Catholic families. That being said, what I see from my friends and I hang out with a lot of young Catholic families is they are isolating from the world. They're mm. not evangelizing it. Yeah. Uh, and that their uh, strategy for keeping their kids Catholic is to try to isolate from the world, whether it's in, I don't want to get into all the different kinds of educations, but what I'm seeing is, is they're trying to create a, a bubble. Uh, and uh, within that bubble, 
protect their kids' innocence. And I understand the instinct to do that, especially with all the influences of the world. Um, but then their bubble becomes an echo chamber uh, and they never engage or encounter other people. And so what ends up happening with their own children, and I see this because I work with their children, is eventually that bubble gets burst and these kids are completely unprepared for the world around them and they get eaten alive. Or what ends up happening is uh, we don't evangelize, so we don't grow. Uh, so all of that to say, and, and they're trying to rebuild Christendom within that bubble, which is a fancy word for saying Catholic culture. And, and I, I firmly believe Christendom is dead. Uh, that it used to be that you could count on um, growing up within a Catholic community, within a Catholic parish, and that it, you just being saturated in all things Catholic, your kids would grow up Catholic. And it's like, no, that, that world of Christendom mm. um, is, is not coming. We're, we're in an age where we have to evangelize if we're going to uh, fulfill our mission. So all of that being said, I said, look, like we're trying to raise our kids in safe spaces. Like liberal elitist snowflakes have safe spaces. Christians are not supposed to have safe, safe spaces. Yeah. Uh, and um, it's like Jesus said, it's a command, go and make. And this was where I, I called everybody in the room out. I said, Jesus said, go and make disciples. That's a command. That's not optional. And I said, so what does that look like? If you cannot name the person by name who you are discipling, who you are walking with and you are evangelizing, then you need to go to confession. Mm. Uh, so it's a, Dang, yeah, that was a talk. Yeah. No, somebody pulled what me aside la later. You, somebody yeah. pulled me aside later. They said, thank you so much for calling. Like I was yeah. called out. Cause when I heard that, I was like, nope, I can't name anybody. And it's real easy, man, to get sort and of it was, sleepy. It was a young, like a really young, faithful Catholic guy. It wasn't like one of these, like, like, uh, somebody you think would be complacent. It's a person that I, I gathered was on fire and they're like, nope, I'm not. Not evangelizing anybody. Yeah, you need that challenge. No, I mean, it's, look, it's, Christianity is, you know, dangerous. I mean, it really is. Look mm -hmm. at it, look at it historically. And we've, you know, kind of taken a lot of things for granted and kind of fallen back on their laurels. So we need that kind of challenge. What do people say when you say Christendom is dead? Is that controversial to people? I, that's people a, that? that's a, a, a concept that is in a book that's popular within ministry circles that's starting to circulate. Which is, of but, course, why I don't know it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, but there, there's a, I mean, Christendom is, a, you know, it's Christendom is the time period in, in the, within the church when we had, uh, you know, the, most of the kingdoms uh, were, were Christian and the kings were Christian and like the government were Christian and people had Christian values and we were creating Christian art and Christian cathedrals and basilicas and all of it, all of it spoke to Christ. Now the world we live in does not speak to Christ. True. Um, and honestly, the, the age of the world when Christianity was at its best was, well, <laughs> you could argue we've never been at our best because uh, every age of the world we've been, we've had all kinds of different scandals and challenges. But I believe, you know, look at first century Christianity. We spread like wildfire and there were all kinds of issues with first century uh, Christians. But that being said, we spread like wildfire. And we got we killed are, like wildfire and we got, too, though. But that's what worked. That's right. Witnesses. Yeah. When we are witnessing. The blood of the martyrs. When we are witnessing, when we are getting killed and we are praising God within that. Amen. Uh, and it, it's, it's uh, um, a witness that says, what, what's up with those Christians? I, I watched a guy burned alive and he was praying and giving thanks and forgiving the people burning him yeah, alive. bananas. Yeah, they're like, there's got to be something to that. Um, you know what's interesting about what you just said too is like, I wonder, I've heard people bemoan the fact that and maybe more Protestants or atheists who in apologetics context, but they'll say, well, if all these miracles are real and people were levitating and bilocating and doing all this other stuff, and why, why don't you see that much more today, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, all of the... Uh, 
you know, mystical experiences. Well, why don't we see a lot of that stuff today? Do you think that maybe there's a relatedness between how that dying to self and for Christ and the blood of the martyrs being the sort of seed of the church and all of that, that what you just described, that mindset, that kind of food group of Christian and the fact that those things were super prevalent back then, Mm -hmm. right? And today where there's not a lot of that happening. So we're consequently not seeing the Eucharistic miracles, the incorruptibles, the levitators, the bilocators. Do you think those things could be related? I literally Uh, never thought about that until this moment. I think, well, first off, I'll say this. I think, I think we do a disservice when we say those things aren't happening today. Mm. Uh, Because uh, look, like you you mentioned levitating, there's been a handful of saints. uh, You could probably count on one hand that we know had that gift. Uh, So it's very, very rare. But I think of, I'm like, okay, who had incredible gifts? Padre Pio was a 20th century saint. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's not that far away. Uh, hang out with enough of my friends. I mean, you'll see, I, I know I've seen all kinds of healing miracles. I've seen all kinds of different things. You talk about different locations in the church where there's apparently or supposedly apparitions that are even happening today. And you'll hear all kinds of stories of miracles and different things happening. Uh, they don't get advertised that much. Uh, they don't get a whole lot of publicity. But Which is I, also weird in I, such a connected world, though. I think though. it does happen. I think, yeah. number one... I know it does happen. I, I'm just saying that's maybe a, a beef that some people might throw in. Could y- it be related? You and I are in the United States. Yeah. And, and I, you know, Jesus went into a, a faithless... Um, uh, city and he couldn't do miracles. So there's True. there is something to the what I see among among the young people that I work with, and I constantly call them out for it when I'm working with them. As I say, you guys have such low expectations for what God can do in your life. Mm. Like be bold in what you ask mm. for, uh, and and be be faith like have faith. Because yeah. he said, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. And yeah, I've seen it happen for sure. Uh, but it's a matter of uh, in America. Um, in particular, like I think Western civilization, so America, Europe, I think there's a, a real lack of, of faith in what God can do. I think if you were to go to a place like like Africa, Africa, Latin yeah, America, where there's a lot more faith and a lot less, a lot less. I mean, we're in Napa right now. Like we're not lacking for anything here in terms of no, we have what, excess. No, yeah, excess of everything. So comfort breeds, I think. Uh, complacency. Yeah. And I think about that too, in the context uh, as Americans of some of the things that capture the imagination popularly right now, you know, for better or worse, things like inflation or Mm. gas prices or things like that. There are all these like um, deficit of, of, you know, kind of material, right? Deficit of creature comforts, deficit of whatever. But it's, but when you put it in the context of what you just talked about, right? First century Christianity, walking on foot to Asia, to like go and basically get beheaded and do it, you know, joyfully because you're, you're, you're on this mission, man. It's like, that's a very different, you know, reality. Mm -hmm. Um, and obviously the answer to it or how we get back to that is, you know, more proximity to God of stronger relationship with him. But I think this idea that you're onto, and I know it ties to your most current book about one-to-one discipleship, about Mm -hmm. knowing people's name. I think that's like the super highway to that reality, right? Of kind of being connected to another human, this idea of communion, this idea of family, which of course God is in himself. I think that is like the, maybe the first domino that, mm-hmm. that could need to fall in our world, in our, in our you know, Western kind of culture for us to kind of open up to other things that maybe are more prevalent in the rest of the world. Yeah, there's a, um, got, again, being in the United States, people like, like so, uh, a constant, um, 
immediate gratification. That's what I'm, the word I'm looking for. Uh, they they want to see results immediately, and the the reality is that if you evangelize somebody, if you if you're walking with somebody, and which is what it takes to actually help somebody cross different thresholds of conversion in their faith, uh, the the story that I use in my book, as I said, you have to be prepared for the thirty year journey. Uh, and I said I saw this movie that I thought was a, a a perfect description of the temperament you have to have if you're truly going to help somebody cross thresholds of conversion in their faith. And that's, uh, I, I saw a movie about, it was uh, Now You See Me. It was about magicians who like rob banks, mm. uh, which was ridiculous, but it was a lot of fun to watch. Oh uh, yeah, but I heard about this one. It's, a, it's yeah. an interesting movie, yeah. but there's a story they tell in it of, le- of a legendary magician who, uh, when he was like 14, some guy came to his town and he was just like, he said, hey, can I do a magic trick with you? And he had uh, the person write their name on the middle of a card and he made that card disappear or whatever. And the person was like, oh, that's really cute, et cetera. But it, the, the whole goal of that trick was not to amaze them with his sleight of hand uh, tricks. It was to get his name written on the card. Because then he took that card and he and he saw a tree and he placed it in the knot of a tree mm. and, and he left it there. And over the course of like 30 years, that tree grew around the card uh, and oh, grew wow. to be very huge. And then that same person came back to the town like 30 years later. And at this point, the magician was more well known. He, w- he was a bit, had a bit of a reputation, and but this guy didn't remember him. And he went up to him and he said, hey, he says, can I do a card trick for you? And he has him using a of hand, pull out the exact same card mm. that he had pulled out 30 years prior, write his name in the exact same place, made it disappear using sleight of hand. Then he said, your card is growing in the middle of that tree. And they cut down that tree. And sure enough, there it was. There it was. And they said, how did he became legendary because of that trick? And they're like, how did he do it? Well, he had a 30-year plan. Mm. I mean, to have that kind of patience with someone and to, to kind of see this, this the fruition of this uh, majestic idea like play out, the kind of patience that he had to have was amazing. I was like, that's the kind of patience you have to have with somebody uh, in order to really help them cross different thresholds. And, see, what, and what is it? People are just not willing to make the commitment. I mean, what you're describing is it's not transactional, it's relational. Mm-hmm. And relations, relationships kind of, yes, they have a beginning, but they're not really supposed to have an end, right? It's yeah. just supposed to be kind of a 30-year thing, a forever thing. Jesus, so what's the hang-up? Jesus came close to people. And... and uh, and of course, like he became one of us, he became flesh, like it, was, it should show the intention of like God wants to be close to us. But you look at the way Jesus dealt with lepers uh, and it, back in his day, lepers were the, um, if you were to touch them, you were, would be considered unclean yourself. They had to live in a colony. They had to shout unclean to tell people to stay away from them. Yeah. Um, and Jesus uh, turns that on its head. Instead of staying away from them, he gets close to them and he touches them. But instead of him catching their uncleanness, they catch his cleanness and they're healed, which is the exact same way he works with sinners, is rather than staying away from them and shouting unclean, uh, and making them shout unclean back at him, he gets close to them, he touches them, and we catch his purity mm. and are forgiven of our sins. If you look at Peter, the first thing Peter says when he realizes it's the Messiah after the, the miracle of the catching of the fish, as he shouts at Jesus, he like falls to his knees and he says, depart from me, Lord, for I'm, I'm a, I'm a sinful, sinful man. Mm-hmm. He's shouting at him unclean. And Jesus, rather than than pulling back, he draws in. Um, that's scary. Mm. It requires vulnerability. Yeah. And it requires, uh, like nowadays, I feel like all I see among Christians, I shouldn't say all I see, but it's, it's definitely a, 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 a tendency is to stay back and want to shout unclean at people. Mm. Uh, rather than coming close to them and actually getting to know the messiness of their lives. And justifying it all this, every step of the way, right? Saying, yep. uh, I forget who the speaker was. Maybe it was, uh, 
forget who it was. Maybe it was Jeff Cavins um, in his talk just a couple days ago, um, talking about this sense of rationalizing to ourselves, well, that's not my gift. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm just not good with people. Like, I'm just not, or that's not, that's something for somebody else to do. There's a thousand different ways that we can sort of rationalize things, but you're right. It is, it is messy and it is, it requires proximity. It requires, um, that's the whole principle of accompaniment, right? It's yeah. like you got to like get into, get into it with somebody and stay there. We, just as an aside, we, uh, my wife and I run a ministry for um, homeless families. You, you know about this because mm-hmm. we've talked to you about it, but you know, we've got about 40 families that we serve right now. And sometimes those families come in and, in and out of our orbit because they move or because of other different things. But for the most part, I'd say half of them we've known for 20 years. Like we've been there, you know, yeah, they, you know, they have issues that one of them ends up in jail. The other one has something wrong with their car, whatever, but we're in relationship. And it took us a long time to figure out that that's really what we were doing. It was like, we were really obsessed at the beginning about, well, what's the program and what's the steps and how do we do events? And, but in the rear view mirror, what we realized that what God was allowing us to do was actually just get to know some people kind of walk with them. And through the witness of what we do, maybe they could pick up a thing or two that could reflect or redound to them positively. And that's mm-hmm. what's happened. But it's only, it wasn't by design. It wasn't like we said, I was like, we're going to create an accompaniment ministry. Like you're doing that now very intentionally. You're going, dude, this is how you do it. We didn't do that. We found out about it after the fact, but that's what's worked. If yeah. you're going to put it in But it, it starts with a stirring of love. And, of and it, it is true. Like if somebody were to sit back and say, oh, that's not my gift. I mean, if, if they were to, to truly evaluate and say, look, I can't be, I'm, I'm so stirred by emotion and anger or whatever. Let's take the protesters on the side of the road. If they can't approach that person and be friendly to them and engage in a, in a conversation out of love, but rather want to get into a gotcha conversation. Of course. Uh, then they should stay away. They should stay away. Yeah. Uh, I mean, know thyself, I suppose. But, uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, this is why Jesus said, love your enemy. Uh, I, I, the funny thing about loving your enemy is if you love your enemy, they cease to be your enemy. Uh, so there's, there's a, uh, something to be said for a life changing moment for me in ministry. I was 22 years old. Um, I, I was struggling in the apostolate that I had, and I didn't really fully understand why we ended up, my wife and I ended up visiting a friend of ours who was ministering as a missionary in, um, for Amaze Ministries in Chicago, which Amaze Ministries, I feel like there's a hundred ministries named Amaze Ministries, but, uh, Amaze, a good name. it's a good name. Yeah. It's a good gospel, uh, gospel sure. story. So, but this, this Amaze Ministries, they minister to male prostitutes on the mm. streets of Chicago. Well, you and, told me about this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so their, their whole strategy is they send missionaries out into the streets of Chicago, uh, and they, they uh, get to know the, the prostitutes that are there. They invite them to a home during the day where they can get a shower, a meal, eventually Bible study, they get them into drug rehab, all kinds of different things they need to do. So we're visiting our friend who's a missionary there. Uh, and he said, hey, we, we have this thing that we do called an immersion night. Uh, when we have visitors, he says, you want to do an immersion night? And my wife was like, yeah, let's do it. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, what's an immersion? What's an immersion? Yeah. I was like, maybe we should ask some questions. immersed in. Exactly. And so not, not, it was not what I expected. So when he told us what we were doing, he said, so we're going gay bar hopping tonight. And Yikes. I said, wait, wait, what, what are we doing? Like I'm a Catholic youth minister at the time. And, and I'm thinking like scandal on the front page of the newspaper tomorrow. Like 
youth minister found in, in gay bar. And he's like, okay, so here's the rules. We're not allowed to talk about God. We're not allowed to talk about religion, faith, what we do for a living, why we're there, uh, et cetera. He says, your, our goal is to just, just go and learn. And I said, well, that just sounds like we're going gay bar hopping. <laughs> and and uh, he says, exactly. And I was like, wait, why are we doing this? He's like, you'll see. So we go to our first gay bar and, uh, you know, I start shooting pool with somebody and my, my wife and, and my friend Ronnie end up going to the back room. And I was like, oh my gosh, they're going to the back room of a gay bar. And I was like, what do they do back there? And sure enough, like I go back there and it's bingo night, uh, which was not what I expected. <laughs> and, and the person calling the numbers was a drag queen and it was highly amusing. And next thing I know, my guard starts to come down. Uh, and I go yeah. to the bar to get a drink and I had a life changing conversation at the bar mm. uh, and, I, and uh, with a, a man uh, who's a construction worker in Chicago and we started talking and uh, it, it was just, I have no idea what we talked about, mm. it was, but it was a life changing conversation because there was this moment that, that I realized uh, Jesus would, like showed me, he's like, this is a person who I've created image likeness of God. He's just like you. He desires to be loved. He's got wounds in his life. Um, he's got all kinds of different crosses that he carries. Uh, and if you understand that you can minister to him. Mm. Uh, and I was like, everything I'm doing in my ministry, I, I don't understand the people I'm ministering to. Uh, and, and that's why it's not working. Um, and so it was just this, this light bulb moment. I was like, this is why they do immersion nights. Cause they know people come in, uh, thinking stereotypes, thinking about stigmas of, of homosexuality, prostitution. And, and they're like, we want you to meet the people, uh, that are behind all of mm. that. Uh, and it was life-changing. It's kind of crazy too, right? And telling that story, which now I've, I've heard, this is the second time I've heard it, but you know, you pay more attention to things the second and third time. But in hearing that story, what I'm also hearing is not necessarily the way that that interaction was life-changing for the construction worker, mm -hmm. but the way that it was life-changing for you, right? And some of the, the, one of the easy parts that we forget in ministry is the fact that, you know, um, the business world might think of it transactionally and therefore there's a winner, there's a loser. But the way that God works is he goes above and beyond, right? God's extra in that way. He's extravagant. And he uses these, these uh, you know, opportunities to not just, you know, form a bridge and nourish the person you're ministering to, but also the minister. I mean, that's how it works, right? Mm -hmm. It's a sort of two-way street. I was talking to somebody yesterday and the issue of homelessness came up. And one of the things that I hear all the time in our work is, well, there's a lot of people who want to be homeless. And it's like, okay, yeah, let's assume that there's a portion of people who want to be homeless, right? And they choose to be out on the street and choose to not have any resources and choose to be set upon by other homeless folks and, you know, abused by gangs, which happens in LA all the time, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Let's, let's say that they choose that. You think that person's playing with like a full deck of, uh, you know, kind of, um, you know, emotional cards. In other mm. words, is that person, do you think that person has no woundedness in their background? Do you think that person uh, doesn't deserve you to know their name and them to know your name? And it was like this whole conversation the, and the whole power of the conversation began to shift a little bit around this exchange. But the end of it was this notion that when you talk to somebody who's on the street and homeless, and all you do is just say, Hey, my name is Everett. My name is Charlie. Hey, what's your, what's your name? There's something that happens to you, not just to them, right? Mm -hmm. And we so forget. It's like this, again, this thing about, well, that's not my gift. Well, what if their gift, the person you're going to engage in, is going to transform you? Like, we don't think about that. It's just about this sort of one-way street. And what God's about is like this two-way street, right? It's like relationship. 
Both sides, you know, benefit. Both sides play a role. Both sides made in the image and likeness of God. That's why it's so concerning to me to see all of my friends that are Catholic families that are isolated yeah. from the world. Is that they're also robbing their families of the experience, the transformational experience of meeting, meeting the people that that do not fit in their echo chamber. Uh, and it truly is. It's a transformational experience where Christ teaches you all kinds of things. But, How else are you going to learn it? Right. If you can't exercise it. You know, Jesus said famously, you'll have the poor with you always. That mm-hmm. line always bugged me. Mm-hmm. Like, I was like, well, wait a minute. Like, you'll have the poor with you always. And it's like, there's all kinds of mystical and deep ways to think about it. But like the simple way, the way that I think was like, well, maybe that's because we need practice. Mm-hmm. Like maybe that's because how else are you going to exercise these great virtues and grow grace allowed to, to grow on nature if we have no channel, no avenue to exercise these virtues in? Like how do you learn patience? How do you learn courage? How do you learn magnanimity? How do you learn these things yep. if you're not sort of faced with the opportunity to actually exercise them? Hey, that brings us back to Napa for a second because I'll tell you this, talking with people over dinner, I've, I've met some people who are clearly very wealthy. And some of the first things they share about their life is the real the realization of their poverty, meaning that it, it, like they wow. could, they had all the money in the world and they realized I'm not happy, like my life is meaningless, etc. And that's led them to faith. Yeah. Uh, and they, they realized the, the poverty. I mean, some of the, some of the poorest kids I know, I grew up in a very, very wealthy uh, area of the country. Uh, and uh, Naperville, Illinois, uh, and very, very wealthy suburb of Chicago. And um, some of the most, I have, <laughs> I work with young people, and I like to say that the young people I have the most compassion for are the rich kids. And I feel yeah. like it's partly because that's who I grew up around, but they are some of the most impoverished I love people that, yeah, it's that true. I know. It's true. Yeah. Uh, and amen to that. And you got to say that like a thousand times. I talk about that too. I'm like, you know, the, the peripheries, you know, the, and, and, and Pope Francis talking about going out to the margins and all of that. Well, the margins exist in a context. And in our context as Americans in 2022, like, man, those margins are like those people living up in the hills in the 12 bedroom house. And, mm-hmm. you know, they have six Teslas and that whole thing because well, they might not ever hear the gospel. Think, think about this. Imagine how horrifying it would be to have everything you ever wanted in your life and still be unhappy and be empty and be empty. And, and just how disconcerting that would be it's to a say, bummer. like, if I can't be happy when I have everything I want, is happiness even possible? Mm. And, and I mean, that's, those are the kinds of young people I, I meet. And that's why I said I have a, a, a huge passion for the rich kids, because I find that kind of a struggle with them all the time. Yeah. Going back to the bubble thing with the, the kind of Catholics that you're interacting with and you know, we've had this whole notion of the Benedict option for a while, right? To kind of recede from the world and pray for its sanctification, but from a distance, you know? Um, and this may be sort of a newer iteration of it. When you interact with folks like that um, and you talk to them about this kind of message that you're saying, I mean, do they get it? Do they respond? Do they, do they, do they kind of justify, rationalize? Like what's the, what's the typical dialogue with folks like that for you? Um, well, gosh, I, I, so I gave the session, uh, on Thursday, it's Saturday today. So a couple days ago, uh, and, um, it was standing room only. People want to know why young people leave the church. It's a hot button. Uh, and, uh, you know, I called, I called out the room. I was, I, I, I probably, <laughs> I, I did engage a little bit with the people over Twitter that were, that were, uh, angry. And I, at some point I was like, why am I doing this? And uh, <laughs> why am I doing this to myself? But I did say to somebody, I said, I promise I won't pull punches. And I said, mm. I'm going to keep that promise. And, and that's why in the room, I, 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 
threw it out there and said, guys, go to confession if you if you can't name the name. And uh, at the end of the session, I got a standing ovation, which awesome. which I was like, okay. So either either this message was very well received or there were two people who really received it and they stood up and then and everybody, everybody else, else followed. Yeah, everybody yeah. else followed because they were like, well, we don't want to be rude. <laughs> but, um, but there's a... A, uh, a reality that I think uh, people are, are genuinely um, I, I will put it this way I think I think if they if they respect you and they trust you and and if you sh- if you show uh, uh, my wife I was talking to her on um, uh, right before and I was telling her I was I'm, I'm a little worried about this session I'm giving because I said Napa is not my audience uh, typically and she said uh, and I was like and this is so not like drinking wine at night and talking to people um, that are typically not the kind of people I hang out with. I said, it's just not my thing. She said, Everett, be authentic. And she said, that's, she says, I've known you for forever. Uh, and she's like, and I've seen you in ministry. And the thing that people are attracted to about you is to just be authentic. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's true. Like if you're, if, if people can, can see your authenticity of uh, it has served me well to take down the the mask of everything's okay in my life, but rather to be vulnerable with people and say, no, here are the crosses that I carry. Here's the ways that I've sinned. Here's the ways that I screw up. Um, and, and to show people, yeah, I'm a real person. Uh, when people trust you, they'll listen to you. Uh, I learned that from um, um, a president of life teams out here. Uh, and we don't always see eye to eye on everything in, in, in ministry. Uh, but that, that's the guy that I mentioned. I was late. That's the guy I blew off my breakfast, uh, <laughs> appointment with it's this not gonna morning. Add, it's yeah. not going to redound well yeah. to your relationship. Oh, yeah, no, not at all. Um, but no, Randy is, is a, is a wonderful, wonderful man. Mm-hmm. And he told me once years and years and years ago, and I, I took this to heart. He said, uh, he says that when you work in ministry, you're going to get criticized constantly. Uh, he says, only take it seriously. If it's a person that you, um, respect. He says, if it's a person that's, that you respect, that's calling you out, then he says, you should probably take that to heart and take it to prayer and listen to it more. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would have told you too. take a little bit of your own medicine too, which is, yep. you know, it's like, Hey, if we're all about this one-to-one, if we're all about, you know, uh, interacting at the margins and, you know, maybe dealing with folks that may not, we may not see eye, eye to eye with all the time as a way to kind of challenge ourselves and burst that, that bubble a little bit, you're going to have to do it. Right. It's like, mm-hmm. in fact, it, it's, it's, it's perfect that this is a crowd who maybe typically you wouldn't interact with in mm-hmm. that way. Right. Yep. Because that is the message that you're delivering is the importance of that, of that dynamic. But yeah, I, I worry about this dynamic of, um, you know, this sort of receding, uh, because I think, you know, the enemy is so smart and it's like, man, he can make something good, uh, that's objectively good into a weapon. You know what I mean? And the weapon there is the drawing back, the kind of, um, you know, again, just sort of receding to not advance the gospel beyond the walls that I can immediately control with, you know, folks who are kind of like me or agree with me and, and that kind of thing. I see a lot of the, so go ahead. Yeah. You know, one of the things I've noticed too, is that for, for quite some time, I think where there's been a, an emphasis in, uh, in our church on catechesis and apologetics. And the, the reason why is that their post-Vatican II or catechesis was horrible. Uh, people didn't know their faith. There's a whole generation of young of people that never learned the basics. Uh, but the problem, the problem with it is that it, it has breeded an attitude among Catholics where we think that 
converting uh, like you have this aha moment like why didn't anybody ever teach me this stuff when i was younger and oh my gosh the, the, what i'm learning is amazing and then you immediately want to tell everybody about it and you're like let me tell you why you're wrong which is the wrong yeah. the wrong attitude to have to when you're engaging with somebody who doesn't necessarily agree or know or understand our teachings is well let me teach you let me tell you and and the attitude that i try to get people to get into is i said you need to start with let me give you my well first off tell me your story uh, I need to know and understand you. And then let me tell you my story. Uh, here's here's the the journey that I've been on, the struggles that I've had, uh, the way that that Christ has impacted my life. Let me talk you, to you about my living faith. Mm. Um, I, an apologetics argument back, there's a time and a place for apologetics to defending the faith and, and teaching, et cetera, but it's not first conversation. Yeah, well, the line that's used oftentimes in the apologetics context is, uh, First Peter three fifteen, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of always be ready, always be prepared to share with somebody the the basis of your of your of your joy of your hope, right? Um, but then Peter continues, right? We kind of leave that that part out of doing it with gentleness and meekness, and doing it with love, right? Saint Paul's same thing. It's like tell the truth in love, right? And and there's both are true and have been true forever, but the the, the degree of emphasis the Holy Spirit I think is placing upon the accompaniment part, the know your story, know your name, Mm -hmm. go to the gay bar and just shoot pool. Like that part, that emphasis, I think that the Holy Spirit is, is kind of pushing on, pressing that button hard for us as a church here in the U S because, you know, the outcome of the other approach is this kind of balkanization in a weird way where everybody's got like their little pocket, right? Where this is what's happening, but we're not, we're not bringing people in. I think there's also a lot of confusion. I wonder what you think about this between doing what we're talking about, which is this kind of know my story, know my name, and this notion that somehow that might run you afoul of orthodoxy, mm-hmm. right? In other words, if I don't tell them the citation and the catechism on the first meeting, somehow I'm playing into a culture that's all about meet them where they are, but that's about it. We're going to give you hugs and love you, and it's all ponies mm-hmm. and flowers and cookies, and and we never really get to the truth, Right. So I think there's some confusion about that, or at least an apprehension where people feel that, well, if I do just do that, if I just go and I go to the gay bar mm-hmm. and, I, and I don't whip out the Bible, like, you know, I'm missing an opportunity. And this kind of runs me into some elements or sectors where I don't feel very comfortable because I feel that those are the people that are kind of leading the church astray. You I, see what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, sure. I, and I think that there's a, a, a fairness in saying that because I think we all know a person or two that, oh, that, yeah. uh, that it's like they do not know their faith well and they, they, it's it's all butterfly and rainbows, et cetera. And those people also get eaten alive. The people who is all like kumbaya God, that's their relationship. Um, look, I've got a, a bachelor's degree in theology from Franciscan University of Steubenville, which is a very orthodox university in its teaching. I've got a master's in theology from Augustine Institute, also very orthodox. Um, I, I'd like to say, and granted, the more you study, the more you realize you don't know. But for the most part, I would say I know my faith inside and out. Uh, I, I know catechesis inside and out. And that was very intentional on my part. As I said, when I'm studying, I want to get the best teaching I can possibly get uh, because I want to know my faith inside and out. But then what I eventually learned is, oh, uh, there's um, simply su- sitting somebody down and saying, let me teach you all the things and regurgitate to you all the things that I've learned. No, the, 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 what you've learned has to infiltrate every part of your being and in your life. And then there are plenty of moments I have where it comes up and I'm like, let's break out the catechism. Let's break it. Or actually, no, I don't, I can't say I've ever broken out the catechism ever in a conversation. Uh, I practically have the catechism memorized. That's mm. why I'm able to talk about it. Uh, and, um, 
uh, but I'm not quoting like in CCC, it says that like, because if, if, if you don't have the same shared, um, understanding that the catechism is a authoritative book, like if they don't have respect for that book, they don't care what it says. Uh, so you, but to say, to be able to, to state some of the teachings in it, uh, and make them make sense for the person. I was, I was out, um, <laughs> my father-in-law when I first met him as an atheist, um, he'll never listen to this, so that's fine. I'm <laughs> I can talk to him. Special. I'm gonna I send talk it to, to him this. personally. Yeah, no, and I don't think I don't think he would. Um, uh, when I was 18, I ended up in a. Uh, I was dating his his daughter, obviously, uh, and um, we were in a long car ride back from college. He picked us both up, and uh, over the course of a three hour car ride, he started asking me questions, and it started this really engaging conversation. And I was 18. Like, there's, a, I, I I could do the best I knew how to do answering his questions, et cetera. But, um, I've left, he, over the last 20 years, cause now I'm 38. Uh, he has referred to that conversation over and over and over again. And about every two or three years, we pick up that conversation where it left off. And mm-hmm. I always let, let it happen with him. So, uh, he's now at a point where he would probably say that he was a practicing Catholic who believes in God more or less that struggles with basic dogma. So his most recent conversation with me, he's like, okay, I, he says, you remember that conversation we had? He always starts with, remember that conversation we had in the car ride? Right. And it's and like, like 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, of course. Like, no, I know, I know where this is going. Like every few years we pick this back up. And I'm like, of course I remember it. And, and, uh, he's like, I got more questions. I'm like, okay. So his most recent conversation with me was, he's like, I, the Holy Trinity makes no sense to me. And I'm like, oh, for the love of God, like, you're going to ask me to explain to you the Holy Trinity. Like, <laughs> talk about one of the most complicated, most, most difficult teachings to be able to teach. Uh, and, uh, I was like, okay, let's go. But that's where my theology background then came in. And it's not like I broke out the catechism and was like, well, let's see what, what the catechism says. No, he needed it logically explained to him Mm. in a way that made sense, which by the way, is not the way St. Patrick explains it. Cause uh, that does not like the, the three leaf clover as an explanation of the Holy Trinity is, is heresy. Like it does not make sense. Modalism. Yeah. Yeah, Modalism. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so. Um, even even the great saints who are have their reputation for explaining the Trinity did a, did a poor job. But the best um, two comments. Uh, the, the first of all, on that one, the 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 best explanation I ever heard. The kind of like quick elevator version of the explanation for the Trinity I heard from Jimmy Aiken, hmm. apologist. You know, uh, has podcasts and's been. You know, this guy's a seminal kind of apologist for a very long time. Um, but I, I think it was a little kid actually who may have called into the show and cause they used to do these like kid apologetic hours. Or oh, that's going to be a tough one, man. Yeah. And they were like, Explain the Trinity it is like three persons, one God. And I forget how the kid asked the question, but the way that he said was, okay. He said, everything is a being. He's like, because it bees. So it, it, it's a being, right? So a rock is a being and you're a being and God is a being. He said, some beings are zero persons. Some beings are one person and in the, like you, and in the case of God, he's three persons, right? And it was this idea of kind of, because the, the point that he ended up and he said, did a lot better than I just did, but he ended up in this, in this place of describing something that was not logically inconsistent without using any of that language. Mm-hmm. Just saying, you know, every, every being just is something that is, it bees, right? And then some are no zero persons, some are one persons, some are three persons, right? And it was that that is the the simplest explanation that a kid could understand that I've ever heard that is actually 
Yeah. Not heresy. That's how that's how he rolls. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. That's impressive. Yeah, no, he, he's a super interesting guy. The other thing, though, about the apologetics thing that you brought up just earlier is, you know, I I was a culture. You know my story a little bit, right? I was a raised oh, that's right. I, I forgot you're bigger with Catholic answers too. Yeah, at yeah. Least have been. Yeah, yeah. Um, vice chair emeritus. I actually checked yeah. with uh, the CEO to see if I could call myself that because I was the first vice chairman. So I was like, hey, could I be the emeritus? He said it was cool, so I am. Um, but in any case. Um, the whole apologetics thing for me is interesting because what turned me on to apologetics in my journey, because I was a cultural Catholic and I mm-hmm. kind of grew up just kind of going through the motions, big Latino household. And it was like this kind of food, this kind of music and this kind of faith. It was just built into the cake. And so it was kind of invisible to me. I didn't really see the faith for a long time. And then when I discovered and started to awaken to my faith, apologetics was a big part for me of how I learned more about the faith, right? But what really moved me in the apologetics context was the stuff that you were talking about earlier, which is the stories, personal stories about conversion, personal stories about conversations, listening to people interact with others and have these discussions in the car, like with your father-in-law. Those were the things that I was like, oh, wow. Like it wasn't just the academic piece, the kind of studying, the memorization, all of those things, which doesn't make those things wrong. It just means that they weren't as effective in actually reaching me. And I think you're right. I think it's, it, it's not as effective in reaching really anybody. And even if it was at one point, it may not be as effective today. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's like, th- there, there's, there's just a, a time and place that we're in where the way the application of the truth needs to be, you know, in the light of the times and like, how are we going to get this message out in the most effective way? And I think you're doing that by emphasizing, yeah. you know, the theory of one and all the other stuff that you talk about constantly. That, that's the, that's the distinction. I, and I made this in my session on Thursday. I said the, 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 the message uh, is extremely important. What Jesus taught, uh, but so is the method. And that's the part that we, we failed to understand is that it, Jesus didn't just teach us the message. He taught us the method. And, and if you look at his, at the risk of sounding like a heretic, which I know that I'm walking the line when I say this, but Jesus's large group ministry was largely a failure. Mm. Uh, and in fact, you could even make the argument that it's what got him killed, mm. that the crowds eventually turned on him, mm. um, tried to kill him multiple times because of some of the things that he taught. And, um, if you look at his sermon on the mounts and I led, I led my uh, session yesterday with the, the sermon on the Mount mentality example, but that uh, sermon on the Mount was the greatest sermon he ever gave. That's why it's in Matthew's gospel it takes up several chapters. It's referred to constantly nowhere in Matthew's gospel. Does it say that anyone who heard it became a lifelong follower of his? Mm. Like if anything, uh, he, people would have been turned off by it because he was speaking to a crowd of Jews and he said to them famously, this is when he said, love your enemy. And they were expecting, the Messiah to come and deliver them from kicks some ass. Basically. Yeah, they wanted. They were expecting him to 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 call out a revolution. And in fact, a sermon on a mount was typically the location where uh, a person who was a revolutionary would give a revolutionary type of sermon, calling people to arms and action. So the fact that he was on a mount and he delivered the the um, the the like love your enemies like not what people would have expected. Mm. The only reason why we know what was said in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount is because Matthew wrote it down and Matthew was one of the 12. Mm. Uh, and yeah, and so it's, it's, it's if you look at the divine plan to conquer the entire world, and there was a divine plan to conquer the entire world, um, it involved Jesus 
not going around the entire world. He stayed in one place. Israel is a very small piece of land, and he never left Israel. And he expressly said that I haven't yep. been called to the people beyond, right? I mean, the whole we don't throw our the, the you know scraps to the dogs and all of that yep. was in the context of I came to do this one very specific thing. He was always clear that this is going to go out to the Gentiles, mm-hmm. and yet he never went out to the Gentiles. He never went out to the Gentiles. I mean, he, I mean, he went out to Samaria differently, but he never went left Israel. Yeah. And so there's a, a reality that his plan to conquer, conquer the entire world was pouring into the 12 and even among 12 he had three and even among three he, he had, had one, one. And, and among that uh, I, I really do believe that Jesus and this is the mentality we have to have when we're going to be successful Jesus's plan to conquer the entire world he looked out into the masses and he didn't focus on oh my gosh how am I going to minister to all these people he singled out Simon the fisherman he said how do I make that that man Simon how do I make him into Peter mm. uh, and once he figured out how to transform this sinning fisherman uh, into Saint Peter he multiplied from one to three and then three to 12 and 12 to 72 and so on and so forth. Uh, that's the mentality I want Christians to have. And 72 to 1.5 billion. Yeah. This is what mother Teresa did. Her missionaries of charity have expanded all over the world. She had the worst evangelization plan probably in the history of the church. Uh, she went to the a poorest of the poor. She went to Calcutta, India. True. No money, where, no, no money, resources. no resources, nobody paying any attention to no, them. Don't even speak the, no. the dominant language. Yeah. Yeah. She went out into the streets and she held people and uh, who were dying in the streets until they died so that they knew they were loved. That's how she started. Uh, so and the, every Everybody in the world knows her, even people who are nowhere but, near. But think Christian. about this. The people that she's spreading the gospel to, um, who could in theory then take the gospel to others. She took the gospel to people and then they died. Yep. <laughs> so that like, it's the worst evangelization plan in terms of like multiplication. Not ever. a strategy you would draw. Up. No, not at all. But one other person recognized what she was doing and she said, can I help? Can I do it with you? And then another, and then another, and then she started, it became a community of, of sisters and then it just expanded more and more and more. And mother Teresa, uh, you know, famously said, uh, pay attention to the one in front of you, like love one another. Start you want to change the world, you. go yeah. home and love your family. Absolutely. Right. I mean, but that's the contradiction of God. The contradiction of the gospel, right? Is like the way the world thinks is usually the exact opposite, right? So going and interacting with that dying leper in a back alley in Calcutta is what has enabled us today to still remember her. Not did she raise a massive fund and do 27 Catholic startups or whatever it may be, or become president of the United States or whatever it may be. You know what I think is really funny about mother? This, this, this is tangent, but Christopher Hitchens, famous atheist, uh, he was he was like a Mother Teresa hater, which I'm like, how can you possibly be a Mother he was Teresa a, hater? He was but, a devil's advocate at her but, canonization. I don't know if yep, you knew that. I didn't yep. know that. I found out about that recently. Yeah, but he, one of the things he calls her out for is the amount of wealth that the missionaries of charity had, and they had a lot of wealth. Uh, a lot of people gave him money and he was like, look how wealthy, like, it's just a scam. Like what she's doing, look how much money they had. But the funny thing is about it. I'm like, yeah, they had a lot of money to help expand their mission. They slept on cement floors and the only thing they owned was a bucket to and a sari. And the, the bucket was there so they could wash their sari. Mm. Like that's the way the missionaries, are ch- they didn't, yeah, they have money to expand their missions, but they didn't use it for themselves. Like you talk about the poorest of the poor, the a whole part of the missionaries of charity and mother Teresa's order is they live among the poorest of the poor and they embrace the poverty of the poor and they are hardcore in their poverty. Yeah. She was, uh, she was, Notorious is the wrong word, but yeah. uh, let's just say really energized and enthusiastic about the concept of 
um, you know, get, getting resources and transforming those resources for the kingdom of God, right? There's yep. a story about some field or something that somebody donated and it was from some weird real estate transaction that shouldn't have happened. And it was a little shady. And they asked her about that. And she was like, I'm going to take that and I'm going to make a, you know, mission hospital so that people can die with dignity. She was like, bring it, <laughs> bring that, bring that field, bring that money, bring whatever it is, because she was so, uh, you know, energized about, uh, about carrying out her, her mission in the world. Everett, we got to wrap because you've got places to be and so do I, but I know two things I want to just mention, um, and we'll include all this stuff in the show notes and whatever else you want to talk about, but you have a new book just came out last month, the month before? Yeah, May. One Disciple at a Time, great book. Uh, you also have a new podcast called Holy Conundrums, which I've been privileged to be a guest on. Mm-hmm. So those two things are happening. Is that part of one bigger thing? Like, is- Yeah, so it, uh, I'm the founder and executive director of Andrew Ministries. We build a uh, small group discipleship with young people. And the, the, the tagline is, uh, uh, you know, world-changing, impactful small group ministry. Mm-hmm. And it really is the, I'm a very small postulate. Uh, but it is, uh, we get huge results with young people in, in terms of, of changing the way we're working with young people. Statistically, the, the success that our, that our ministries that we've developed have, have developed in terms of uh, active Catholicism, young people who are thriving. So it, everything I do is, is under the umbrella of Andrew Ministries. Uh, you're right, I have a new, new book called One Disciple at a Time through Ave Maria Press. You can also find it on Amazon uh, and uh, Holy Conundrums podcast. I love to talk. I love to have conversations like this. We talk about church problems. Uh, and so we have, I have guests on where we talk about church problems and sensible solutions. Yeah, it's a great, great podcast. Um, and we'll include all that information uh, in the show notes. And if folks want to you know, keep in touch with you, track you, you know, follow you on Twitter, get involved with you in that world. Like, you know, we'll include some of that, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Everett Fritz on Twitter. Uh, come shout at me. That's what people do on Twitter. Uh, and, and I'm on Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, and, and uh, the, the website is andrew-ministries.com. So Beautiful. Add. And we'll include that stuff in the show notes. What a great privilege it is to have you on the show, brother. It's been a, a long time in the making, but uh, glad you're here. Won't be the last time because we've got lots of other stuff uh, to talk about. If you're hearing our voice, I invite you to make this an opportunity to subscribe to the show and to share this episode because I think some of the stuff that Everett is talking about, about how we can challenge people to kind of break through that bubble, to recognize the importance of that one-to-one ministry, that uh, one-to-one contact and evangelization. All of that is really important at this time and moment right now. So there's definitely somebody who can benefit from this show. So send this episode to a friend and we'll see you all again next time on Living the Call.